please, to Acts chapter 8. We began into the beginning of Acts chapter 8 last week because it fits very well with all of chapter 7. And so we took all of chapter 7 in one big bite last week for it tells one big story. When you approach the Bible, this is a little interpretational key for those of you who are learning to study the Bible. When you approach the Bible, you have to take it on its terms. You have to take it in its particular genre. For instance, whenever we recently worked through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, the book of Ephesians together, there were weeks and we would just do a couple of verses at a time. And Paul wrote those words to the Ephesian church. They were rich and pregnant with meaning, and so sometimes in such literature you slow down and you, you wring out the sponge, so to speak. When you come to a genre like this, which is narrative, it's telling a story, you want to get the story, you want to get the main point of the story, and while you want to get the details for sure, you perhaps will approach it in a bit of a different manner, because the main point is just that, the main point. And frankly, so much of the scriptures are written to us in narrative form. So we took all of chapter 7 last week in one big bite so that we could get the main point. And that is that Jesus is God's promised Redeemer. He had been faithful to His people for centuries, even nearly millennia, And despite the fact that they had shown faithlessness and by and large had rebelled against them, He still sent the promised Redeemer to bring them life. And in Stephen's sermon, he exposed the self-righteousness of the religious leaders and showed them that like their forefathers, they had rejected God's gracious revelation. Some believed as we will learn in the context of the entire story of the book of Acts. But the immediate aftermath of Stephen's sermon was that he lost his life. The first three verses of Acts chapter 8 that we read together last week are foreshadowing. Luke is a really good writer as he tells this story. Let's read those first three verses again. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, where the gospel had been confined up to this point. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Turn with me, if you don't mind, back to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus has already been crucified and resurrected and has come now to the point that He will ascend to be back to the Father, with the Father. So in verse 6, the apostles and Those following them come together to meet with Jesus, and they ask Him, Acts 1-6, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You're going to bring to pass all Your promises we've been waiting for. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons 
that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that is what we see now coming to pass in Acts chapter 8. The gospel had been confined, and in some ways necessarily so, to the environs of Jerusalem. This was a bit of an incubation period for the church. For those of you who have raised little chickens in the past or perhaps have seen this done before, you can order little chicks and they come to your house and then you build a little incubator and you put the little chicks in the incubator and it helps them grow for the environment for them is too harsh. They need time to grow strong so that they can eventually be out on their own and forage for food and whatever else chickens do. That was what was going on early in the church. It was an incubation period. The early church needed time to marinate, so to speak, in the Word under the leadership of the apostles. They needed to see that God indeed had made promises and was keeping promises. They needed to learn what their marching orders were as well. Not only did they need to marinate in the Word, they needed to know what to do with all of that. If they were indeed the promised people of God that had experienced redemption through Jesus, the promised Messiah, what were they then to do that was transformative for them? And so they learned under the leadership of the apostles that they were not only to grow in their worship of Jesus, they were to extend the good news of Jesus to those who had not heard. And so that's what was happening early on in Jerusalem. It was incubation period, but but under the leadership of Jesus, that period needed to come to an end. Because as we just read in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the gospel was not just for the capital city of the Jews. The gospel was for all peoples everywhere. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus allows this persecution to come to pass. And as you see in verse 4 of Acts chapter 8, the result of this persecution is that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, as we will learn in a few weeks in Acts chapter 9, the very instrument of this persecution and execution, unjust execution of Stephen would lead to the conversion of perhaps the most mighty and influential apostle that there ever was. Saul, who would more commonly be known as Paul, would be converted mightily by the sovereign grace of Jesus to take the gospel well beyond Jerusalem and Samaria to the rest of the world. And so in this story we find that Jesus is still at work. Jesus is enabling and even forcing the church to carry out His commands. The gospel will be for all peoples everywhere. And so we see here once again in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25, in many ways what we saw last week, that Jesus and His people are on mission. So let's read together Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25, and see what God has for us today. Now those who were scattered, as we've already read, went about preaching the word. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord 
paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen in any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And may God bless to us the reading of his holy word. The first thing I think that we see in these first few verses of our section today is that in the wise and kind providence of our Lord, even the most apparent tragedy is meant for good. I don't know that when Luke wrote these first few verses of our section today, that he necessarily had this existential, pastoral, if you will, concern in mind. But it had to have been something that the early church reflected on. Luke would have written this quite a bit after the events actually took place. Luke would not have been there when this took place, but would have learned about it. Now, ironically, and again, this is a bit of foreshadowing, Luke may well have learned about what happened in all of this through people like Paul, which is really interesting and, again, ironic if you think about it. For Saul, Paul's Hebrew name, who had been complicit, even directly responsible for the stoning of Stephen, and the persecution that arose as a result of this, would have had time later to reflect upon this. Paul, we will be converted to faith in Jesus in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 9. What would it have been like for Saul, more commonly, as I've already said, known as Paul, to reflect in the early days of following Jesus on what he had just done? He had been complicit in the murder of one of the important leaders of the early church and had to have felt great regret 
likewise probably great admiration, and also probably in time would have been able to discern the hand of His providential Lord Jesus and using evil to bring good to pass. This was a common theme for the early church, that despite or even because of seeming persecution and evil, darkness on the horizon, if you will, that this did not thwart or undo the plans of Jesus, but actually were used by Him to bring His plans to pass. And as you are able to rise above the story a bit, and that's one of the benefits of reading narrative like this, stories like this, is we get to survey it. We get to read it and reread it, and we get to see it in its context. And then because we know what happened before and because, perhaps more importantly, we know what happened afterward, we're able to see where it fits in the big story. Our lives are like that. For some of you, as you begin a new calendar year, you are full of dread. The year that just went by did not go the way that you wanted And because you perceive yourself to be not a pessimist, because you don't like to call yourself that, but a realist, you expect perhaps that 2018 might be the same or perhaps even worse. But one of the things that the Word of God does is it it reorients us. It, It sets us in our proper place. One of the benefits of reading the Word is we can see things after the fact. It's hard for us to do that when we're in the midst of our own story. When we're in the midst of our own story, we can be so gripped by the darkness, and perhaps to continue that metaphor, to tease it out just a bit, we're so enveloped by darkness, we can't even begin in our minds to see a way forward. There seems to be no light whatsoever. But as we read the Word it, it causes us to see light, again to keep teasing out the metaphor, and it allows us to sometimes be, be lifted out of the present and to see how God has moved in the past, which then suggests that we should not only understand what God has done historically through the record of the Scriptures, but, but also consider how our lives line up in parallel. In other words, what I mean by that, is that our lives are much the same. When we can get a little bit of perspective, we can see just how faithful God has been. What did Jesus from heaven continue to do on behalf of the church? Not just cleaning up the messes that were going on in their midst and then all around them, but using those very messes even sinful, dastardly, evil actions of the opponents of the church to bring about His purposes. What do we see? We see that He will always keep His promises. And what is the major promise that we see being fulfilled here? It's a story, a promise that's really quite ancient. Stephen spoke of this when he told the story of Israel. He records the story of God's faithfulness to covenant Israel in Acts chapter 7 before he is stoned and executed. A story, a promise that was given to a man named Abraham. 
that through Abraham, God would build a nation. Of course, we know that's Israel. But he wouldn't just bless Israel. He would use Israel to bless the world. What's going on here in Acts chapter 8? Nearly two millennia later, we find that God is bringing His sovereign promises to pass. He's blessing the world now. To be just a little bit crass for a moment, He's going to take the gospel to the half-breeds. That's how the Jews saw the Samaritans. They had some, some Jewish ethnic descent, but it was mixed together with Gentile descent. And because they weren't pure bloods, the Jews didn't like them. And then in turn, vice versa, the Samaritans did not like the Jews. But what is Jesus now doing through an evil act, Stephen's death, a tragic act, one that led to great lamentation as we saw last week? He's keeping His promise to Abraham. This means that sometimes God takes a long time, in this case, nearly 2,000 years, to bring about the fulfillment of His promises. And as we're going to get into Acts chapter 9, and you see Paul, Saul, converted, who will take the gospel to the Gentiles, this is really going to rapidly ramp up in the coming weeks as we read through the book of Acts. God's going to pour out His promises in in great power, like a fire hose. It it was just a trickle before. There were Gentiles in the past who had come to faith in God's covenant promises, but by and large it was just that, just a trickle, a drip. It's going to be like a fire hose. And up till this day now, and ironically almost 2,000 years after the fact, the fire hose has not been turned off because primarily the gospel has been embraced by non-Jewish people. So here and again as a pastoral exhortation to you, take time to be in the Word consistently. Whenever you are in the midst of darkness and you cannot see, I know, because I have some of these same tendencies myself, to step away from God's Word, to, to not listen to His voice Because we think that if we just stew and marinate in our own misery and and depression that I in no way want to minimize, that somehow perhaps the darkness will lift and we just want to be there for a while. But we crave to be out of that because it's miserable. What does God's Word do for us? It's not like a magic silver bullet that takes away all of our pain and depression in a moment's notice, but, but on balance, over time, what God's Word does is it shows us that, that through joy and through tragedy, God is doing something, and He will bring us promises to pass even if they are on a delay. And then we're able to see our own story through that lens, and we're able to realize through, through the movement of God, even by delay that He has kept His promises to us. And then by faith, we're able to put one foot in front of another. Sometimes, some days, seemingly that's not possible. But, but over time, on balance, and believe that He will bring all of His promises to pass even in the midst of our pain. And, and that's what the story of Stephen led to. Was the stoning of Stephen evil? Was it sinful? Yes. It reminds us, of course, of the execution of the Lord Jesus, 
which was a far greater murder. But through the murder of Jesus, as we saw earlier in the book of Acts, God brings about his sovereign purposes. What man means for evil, God means for good. And in the wise and kind providence of our Lord, even the most apparent tragedy is meant for good. We saw Stephen, who was one of the seven chosen in Acts chapter 6 to help take care of the practical needs of the church, sort of like early deacons, though they're not called that. Philip was one of them too. And herein is another suggestion for us as the people of God, and that is that the apostles are not the only ones who can preach the Bible. The apostles are not the only ones who have the power and responsibility to make the good news known. In fact, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen's stoning, the apostles hang back in Jerusalem. But a large portion of the rest of the church scatters. Well, if the gospel is going to be proclaimed, it's not going to be by the apostles in Samaria because they're not there. And this means that we are all to be engaged. The story doesn't come right out. Like, like Luke doesn't take a parenthesis and say, now let me interpret this for you. The interpretation of this is that all people, people like Stephen and Philip, who were not apostles, who, who were not the experts, they were responsible for taking the gospel to their neighbors, and so were you. Like, like Luke does not pause for a moment and give us a parenthetical pastoral application. But it's easy to see. This means that none of us are excused from this responsibility. And it's easy for us to fall into that trap. It's easy for all of us. It's easy to say, well, I, I don't have the gift of gab, or, or I'm... I don't have the, the sharpest recall in the moment when I'm engaging with my unbelieving neighbor or coworker or friend, and, and it's hard for me to, to answer their questions, and I'm afraid I'll mess it up, and, and so mostly what I want to do is just be nice to them. And, and that's good, right? You should be nice to all people. But what you see in Stephen, who was a mighty man in the Word because he had had that incubation period, and now Philip himself is that is that we are to know the Bible as best we can so that even if we're not experts, that we can take the Word of God in any given circumstance and engage people with the hope of the gospel. We're going to see that in the second section of Acts chapter 8. Philip not only takes the gospel to those that he had been raised up to hate, but Philip takes the gospel to a person from North Africa, an Ethiopian. A powerful man who worked for the queen. And in doing so, he would get the gospel into northern Africa. You see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is using common people. Jesus is using common people to get the gospel out of its incubator to people who were despised, and eventually it's going to get to the uttermost parts of the world in unexpected, powerful ways. So all of us are part of this story. Jesus is using every second of our lives to bring about His good purposes. Sometimes we can discern them, and so often we cannot. It has been said 
that when we perceive God to be doing two or three things, He's actually doing 10,000. And I say that that's still true today. What you find here in verse 7 is that Philip is given the power to do mighty signs. Look there with me. Unclean spirits come out of those who are possessed. Those who are paralyzed or lame are healed. This is the fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet said would come when the Messiah would enter the world and work through his people. The prophet says in Isaiah 35, And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus referenced this in Luke chapter 7. John the Baptist is struggling with his faith, and he sends some of his followers to Jesus and say, are you really the one we're waiting for? And Jesus says to John's followers, go back to John and report that the lame are walking and the blind see. He was the fulfillment of all God's promises, but, but he had now gone back to heaven. But the power to overcome evil was given to his followers. Now, I suspect that most of us here sitting today in Lewis Center, Ohio, on this cold, cold day, have never performed an exorcism. If you, if you have done so, I would love to talk to you afterward. I'm sure that would make for a great story. I suspect that most of you have never allowed a mute person to speak or a lame person to walk. Why were the early followers of Jesus able to do this, not just allowed to do it, but a better word is able to do such things. Well, it's because they were entering lands where the darkness was so pervasive that that the light had to break in. To use a metaphor of our current experience in the windows, I'm looking outside and can see the icy weather, there needed to be a deep thaw. Sin had taken over to such a degree in this land that, that God had to show the melting effects of the power of the gospel. And so he did that not only through Jesus and his earthly ministry, but Jesus from heaven enables his followers to do the same thing. And so as the gospel now gets into Samaria, a fall needs to occur. Light has to break into the darkness. So he gives Philip the ability to do these signs to draw attention to the message And what was the result? Verse 8, there was much joy. So the result of evil being overcome, of satanic power being pushed back as the Spirit worked through Philip, the result of that was joy. It, It was the idea of restoration. That's what comes off the page if we meditate on this for just a moment. What did this land need, this land gripped by icy, cold by the darkness of sin, what did it need? It needed light to break in. It needed a thawing. It needed the Spirit to push back against satanic power. Notice subtly the work of Satan in this passage. We learned about this recently as we finished the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul suggests that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against even satanic powers that we cannot see with our eyes. Look what Satan's trying to do in the end of Acts 7, the beginning of Acts 8. He's using the religious authorities of the day to stamp out Christianity. Satanic opposition. 
Then in lands possessed by darkness, what's the norm? Demon possession, brokenness. What is Jesus going to do? What's he going to do through his spirit that John will later say in his first epistle is greater than he that is in the world? He's going to push back against the darkness. He's going to undo satanic opposition. And he's even going to turn it on its head. That's what Jesus does. Jesus and Satan are not equals. These are not foes somewhere up in the heavenlies battling it out. And the outcome is uncertain. As Martin Luther said in his great hymn, Lo, his doom is sure. Satan is being undone. Jesus has already begun stamping on his head. And as Paul will suggest in his letter to the Roman church, one day we'll fully do that through the church. And that's what's going on here in Acts chapter 8. Jesus is pushing back through his people, undoing the power of darkness, and even using it to bring about his power and his purposes. I want to tie a little bow on this first part of our section for today, especially for those of you who perhaps need to hear that Jesus is at work even when it seems like he's not. There was a man many years ago in the 18th century named William Cooper. Cooper wrote a hymn that probably not a lot of you know called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You are probably more familiar with his hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Cooper was born into a family where his mother died when he was very young. His father raised him. They had a very bad relationship. It wasn't warm at all. Cooper went into law and hated it. Cooper was prone to depression. There were four major times in Cooper's life where he was overcome by the darkness. In fact, when he was about 33 or 34, he was in an insane asylum. And I'm not using the vernacular. It was literally called that. It was an insane asylum. And while he was in an insane asylum, as he was walking about the grounds of this convalescent home, he found a Bible sitting on a bench, and through reflecting upon the promises of the gospel, was converted. Later on, he moved to be near John Newton, Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, who was also a pastor, and they became very close friends. Newton spent much time with Cooper, not only on his bright days, but especially on his dark days. He would take him visiting with him as he would visit his parishioners, and they would take long walks together, and Newton would encourage him with the hope of the gospel. Eventually, they wrote a hymnal together. This is one of the hymns that showed up in the hymnal. Cooper writes, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. The church had to wonder 
whenever the persecution began arising over Stephen's execution, what is happening? Is it all going to become undone? We, with the ability to see the big story, able to say, not at all, much the opposite. And I suggest to you that because of this event and hundreds more like it in the Scripture, and if we're honest, hundreds in our own individual lives, He will keep His promises to us. So meditate, scan the events of the Scripture, scan the events of your own life, and as you will see in time, He will make it plain that He loves you and will care for you. In the wise and kind providence of our Lord, even the most apparent tragedy is meant for good. But as we will learn in verses 9 through 25, the Holy Spirit is God's free gift to His renewed people and will lead to the restoration of genuine worship. This is a really interesting section. It, we probably, for several weeks, could, could spend time in this and tease out various theological threads. We're not going to do that. I'm going to suggest some things broadly today that will come out a bit more in our finality of Acts chapter 8 next week. After I finish next week, after I finish chapter 8 next week, we're going to hit the pause button for just a moment, and I'm going to do a brief series on the Holy Spirit. It's going to be very connected to what we've learned so far in the book of Acts, but I think it's, it's time for us as a church to, to take a look freshly at who the Holy Spirit is, what He does on behalf of His people, how we are to respond to all of that. Because Acts chapter 8 brings out some questions that, that are a little odd to us. And so we're going to do that in a couple of weeks as we finish Acts chapter 8. But for today, the Holy Spirit is God's free gift to His renewed people and will lead to the restoration of genuine worship. So, so Philip is used by God to, to push back against the darkness, against satanic opposition, to bring falling to the iciness of sin, to bring light into the darkness in Samaria. And the reason that he was given this power, as I've already said to you, is so that attention would be paid to what he actually preached. And so that's what happened. People were enthralled, amazed by, intrigued by the signs, and it drew attention to the message of the gospel, and, and many believed. There was a man named Simon, as you see once again in verse 9, who was a practicer of magic. He called himself great. And as you see in verse 10, the Samaritans called him great. He would later be known in church history as Simon Magus, Simon the Great. Church history has not been kind to Simon the Great. He was seen as merely a magician who was greedy for gain. This section suggests that perhaps he became a follower of Jesus it is said that even Simon himself, verse 13, believed. This comes on the heels of verse 12, which is in so many ways the crux of these early verses in this second part of our section for today. Because as the people who saw the signs, verses 7 and 8, had joy, the most important result, Acts chapter 8, verse 12, is that they believed and they were baptized. They were united to Jesus and to His church. This Simon, this magician, believed, according to Luke in verse 13, and he was baptized too. And then he was amazed. So let's just step back for a minute and just think about what's going on. 
Philip is given the power by Jesus to perform these signs to draw attention to the message of the gospel that Jesus has come to bring restoration to his people and to all peoples. And so what was the result? Many were believed. They carry out the act of baptism immediately to show their allegiance to Jesus. They're going to be united to Jesus. And seemingly, at least initially, Simon believes too. He's baptized too. But perhaps Luke, who is a good storyteller, suggests in verse 13 that that maybe his faith was not completely genuine. He was intrigued. His, His fascination had been titillated, so to speak. Verse 14, the apostles here, back in Jerusalem, back in the original incubator, that this has come to pass. So so days would have passed now. Philip would have continued in Samaria and continued to teach the, the people there, providing them their own early incubation phase where they begin to grow in their faith. So Peter and John, the leaders of the apostles, go to Samaria to see what's going on. They wanted to verify the story. And perhaps because they were Jesus' chosen leaders, they wanted to show these Samaritans that they affirmed them. I think this is interesting, particularly because of the weekend that we are celebrating as a nation right now, that the apostles could have run away from this. They could have doubted it. They could have refused to give their approval to what had happened in Samaria because they, like good Jews, had been raised to not like the Samaritans. But they come down to affirm them. In fact, more than that, they pray for them, verse 15, that they will receive the Holy Spirit. So if there are two little difficult interpretational matters in verses 9 through 25, this is the first of them. Why was it that the Spirit was not given to the Samaritans in full power right away? This is not the last time this will come to pass as you learn in Acts chapter 18 with Apollos and in chapter 19 with some early believers, sometimes the Spirit did not come in total fullness right away. Why was that? Because it's different from our experience. In fact, it has led to such interpretational problems that there are some denominations, even in our own land, that teach that there is a second coming of the Spirit, sometimes called the baptism of the Spirit, something different than new birth. So here's the idea. In some ways, whenever you are born again, the Spirit is actively doing that on behalf of all believers. But in due time, with enough faith and enough prayer and often enough influence by outside leaders, you can have this second experience of the Spirit called the baptism of the Spirit. Does Acts chapter 9, excuse me, does Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 19, does it suggest that? Does it suggest that that's how we should experience the ministry of the Spirit in two stages? A little bit at the beginning, at the moment of salvation, and then a little bit later in our experience. I think the answer is no. That's not what is being suggested here. Then how do we account for the, the delay of the fullness of the Spirit coming upon His people? Well, it seems to be that, that Jesus wants to mark this event. Because when the apostles come down, the leaders of the church, the cornerstone in many ways of the church, if they're able to be part of this, it shows that Jesus is giving his complete stamp of approval. 
So when the apostles, in this case Peter and John, go back to Jerusalem, they can say to the other apostles, this is what the Lord Jesus did. The gospel is not going to just be for us. It's going to be for all peoples everywhere. And as we will learn later in Acts chapter 9, when Paul is converted to faith in Jesus, Ananias, who would be Paul's early incubating discipler, Ananias is told that he has to tell Saul, again, also known as Paul, that he will be the apostle to the Gentiles. The gospel will be for all peoples everywhere. That seems to be the reason for the delay. So that the early church leadership could have a chance to see this actually come to pass. So that it wasn't just Philip telling the story after the fact, but so the early apostles could see that Jesus was doing this and then spread the message for they were the authoritative incubators, if you will, of the early church. And Jesus is showing that his promise of renewal is for all people. And this was going to be very important because even all the way through Acts chapter 15, in many ways the earliest gathering of the church and council under the authority of the leaders, still this question is, is, is worked around like, is, is the gospel for all peoples? And if so, how does the law of Moses apply to that? Do people have to have faith in Jesus and then still practice circumcision and, and still attend worship at the temple in Jerusalem and still perform sacrifices and so forth? This is an important thread that runs not just through Acts, but through a lot of the epistles that we find in the New Testament. What's Jesus doing from heaven through his leaders? He's showing that the promise of restoration is for all people, and it's a free gift. It's not as though the apostles were the only ones who could dispense the Spirit. For in our own experience, we have learned that the Holy Spirit is for all of us, and there's no apostles around anymore. But the reason for the delay here seems to be that Jesus is giving a stamp of approval and showing that the church is going to be unified against ethnic background. It's for all people everywhere. But the second little interpretational difficulty that we find here in verses 9 through 25 is what do we make of this man named Simon? Was he really a follower of Jesus or not? Seemingly, in some way or another, he had power to perform miraculous signs. As you will see later on in a passage like Acts chapter 13, there's a man named Bar-Jesus that is encountered by the apostles who has similar powers. It is more clear, perhaps, in Acts chapter 13, that we will not take time to turn there now, that he actually had demonic power that may well account for Simon's power. Satanic power to confuse people, to draw their attention away from God. But what happens when Philip shows up? He's able to do things that Simon cannot do. So convincingly that the people of Samaria turn away from their fascination in Simon and put it on Philip. And Philip then does not take that affection. He does not take that attention. He deflects it back to Jesus, which is different than Simon. Simon called himself great, drew attention to himself. What did Philip do? Philip did things that were even greater than Simon. But was Philip's response? Philip's response was to deflect that back to Jesus. But Simon is so intrigued by what Philip is able to do and then later, what Peter and John are able to do from Jesus by giving the Spirit, 
that he wants this power too. Look in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now why did he want this power? Did he want it because he genuinely wanted to bless people? That is possible. However, because of the way Peter responds to him in verse 21, that he doesn't have a lot in this matter, Peter may be suggesting to him under the leadership of God's Spirit that perhaps he's not really part of the church. He's not really a follower of Jesus. He says, your heart is not right before God. He says that he is in the gall of bitterness and and in bondage to iniquity. He tells him that he should repent. But then Simon doesn't on his own. He tells Peter to pray for him that nothing bad will come upon him. For Peter suggests that destruction may well be what, what Simon should anticipate. So what do we do with this Simon, this one perhaps who had demonic power to perform miracles and now finds a greater power in his midst and, and wants that power? As I've suggested to you earlier, Simon has not been treated well in church history. He has not been perceived to be a f- follower of Jesus. It is said by some of Simon that he was the first heretic in the church, that may or may not be the case. The text does not lend us a final answer, but perhaps, as has been suggested, it, it leaves it open to interpretation so that, so that we have to wrestle with this in our own hearts. Why do we say that we love Jesus? Why do we say that we follow Jesus? Is it because of what He can give us? Or is it because we believe that fundamentally He is our only hope for forgiveness and renewal? At best, at best, Simon is confused here. At best, Simon has mixed motives. Simon here is is not an easy one to interpret or analyze. His heart wasn't pure. But, But what of us? We've seen this in our past, even in this church. We've seen people who seemingly have come to faith in Jesus but did not persevere, did not persist in faith. And then it raises the question, why did they go out from us? Often because they were not of us, as John says in his first epistle. Jesus was was nothing more than just perhaps a, a talisman to them. Another God that they could put in their pantheon or on their metaphorical totem pole. Like a good luck charm that they could add to their, their temple of gods to make their life go a little bit better. And that does raise the question, what is Jesus for us? Is He just there to help us when we need Him or is He everything to us? Peter was stern with Simon. Peter, the leader of the early church, in so many ways, takes over here. And he is, he's very tough, even, even harsh with Simon. And Peter did that on purpose. He did it for the sake of the church because he didn't want this early church to incubate with heresy in it. Later on in Acts chapter 20, 
Paul will warn the Ephesian elders that wolves are going to come in among them and they had to be on guard because wolves like to eat sheep. Peter is protecting this early church in Samaria. But also because he's concerned about this individual guy's soul and he wasn't afraid to warn him. We live in a day and age where seemingly to say anything stern or harsh means you don't have any love. As parents, we know that's not true. I hope you don't parent that way, right? If your child is doing something foolish, you just tell them. Your job is not to make your child your best buddy. Your job is to tell your child that they need Jesus so that they don't grow up thinking that they're the center of the universe. So out of love, you tell them the truth. Same thing with your neighbor. Though tenderly, with mercy and kindness, no indictment of of personal angst against them, you still have to tell people the truth. And Peter courageously, and I think we can say with love, exposes Simon's heart. So what do we make of Simon? At least, at best, mixed motives, impurity, and need of repentance. But it does cause us to question our own. And as we look at Simon, we see in many ways the early forerunner of a lot of problems we see today. Where the power of the Spirit is peddled by unjust, unscrupulous men and women. Having spent a decent a bit of time now in Africa teaching pastors there, one of the most tragic things that our brothers and sisters in Kenya, particularly that we support, have to push back against is the health and wealth prosperity gospel. And that's come from us. We've, we've given that to them. We see this in our day and age. I don't have to give you names of people on TV who do this today. You know those same people I do. People who preach and teach not the Bible but themselves and draw attention to the amazing things that they can do, not directing people to worship of Jesus but to themselves. And when there is a greater fascination with what a preacher or leader says and does and the attention it garners for them, rather than drawing attention to Jesus, you can be sure every single time that they should not be followed and may well be the voice of Satan. Simon is a cautionary tale that we must not peddle the gospel for personal gain, but rather all attention should be directed back to Jesus. That's what Philip did. Philip was not given the power to do the signs to draw attention to himself. Philip could have gone into Samaria and made himself the greatest leader there, and he did not do that. He drew attention back to Jesus and to his kingdom. And Peter, here, in indicting Simon, is guarding the church. But we better be on guard ourselves today, for there are many wolves who still seek to creep in Don read for us earlier from John chapter 16, verses 4 through 15. We won't take time to turn there either, but one of the interesting things that Jesus says there in John chapter 16 is that the primary work of the Spirit is to instruct and help the followers of Jesus to draw attention to Him and to glorify Him. And the reason that I had Don read that earlier is to draw our attention to this idea. Philip using the power of the Spirit, Peter and John dispensing the power of the Spirit as conduits from Jesus 
drew attention to Jesus. Jesus was glorified through their ministry. Simon was headed in the opposite direction. So one of the things that we will learn as we do our short series in the Spirit here soon in a couple of weeks is that you can be sure that when attention is drawn to Jesus, when Jesus is glorified in, among, and through His people, that the Spirit really is at work. But when people draw attention to themselves referencing the Spirit, the Spirit is actually not at work, and we may well suspect that another, perhaps more evil and pernicious power is at work. So to summarize this, whenever the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, really is at work, what will be the result? Man will be eclipsed and Jesus will be magnified. That's the distinction between Philip, Peter, and John and Simon. And so I'm going to read this for us at the end today in our benediction, but I I do want to suggest to you from 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is for us all. There was a delay for these Samaritans so that they could collectively worship God together as a unified people across ethnic boundaries. But, but we have been brought into fellowship with God through the Spirit, and, and that's for all of us. And this good gift is to be enjoyed, and this good gift is to be shared. What do we do as we walk away from this passage? Well, we must realize, once again, in verses 4 through 8, that even the worst of tragedies is under the superintendence of Jesus and is meant for good. And secondly, in verses 9 through 25, that the Holy Spirit is God's free gift to His renewed people, and He brings about renewed, genuine worship, and that's what we all want and look for. How do we respond to this out of application? Two things. First, we must not lose heart when all around us seems dark and fearful. Inviting others to speak into our doubts is wise and good. Most of us have a propensity, though some perhaps more than others, people like William Cooper. We have some William Cooper-like people in our church. That's normal. That's natural. But whether you, you live above the line of equilibrium and you're, you're mostly pretty happy or, or perhaps below the line and sometimes you are characterized by darkness and sadness, we must not, any of us, lose heart when all around us seems dark and fearful. How do we push back against that? Well, we need to be in the Word. We need to consider what God has done historically and in our own lives. The Bible gives us a lens to interpret our own stories. But, but when we're in the midst of darkness, sometimes we need a John Newton, like Cooper needed Newton. We need other people to, to speak into our lives. And so I tell you, if you're the kind of person that has a very difficult time turning to God in prayer and through the Word, even, even recoiling against fellowship, One of the best things that you can do out of humility is to find a brother or sister and say to them, I need you. That might be a healthy thing for you to do in this calendar year to find a person or two that you can invite into the darkness with you who can shed some light, who can help you interpret your story through God's story. We must not lose heart when all around us seems dark and fearful and invite other people. That's what the church is for. That's why we need each other. The day is drawing near. We must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together for we help each other do this very thing. And secondly and lastly for today, we should be prayerfully sensitive to opportunities for engaging others with gospel hope. What did Philip do whenever the persecution arose? He didn't go hide. He put his life on the line. 
He looked for opportunities, even with people that were unlikely. Even with people that he had been trained to hate. He prayerfully was sensitive to opportunities to engage the world around him with gospel hope. We're going to see that again with Philip in the second part of Acts chapter 8. But what about us? Even now, if you can think quietly for a moment before the noise enters once again, who is it that God has recently brought into your life that needs to be engaged with the gospel? If you don't know or if you've been ignoring it, may today be an initiation of prayerful sensitivity. All of us, in one way or another, have more than one person, I'm sure, that God has brought across our path recently that needs the hope of Jesus Christ. Who is that? Are you prayerfully sensitive to who that may be? And then, are you trusting Jesus, who's still working from heaven, who's still dispensing the power of His Spirit to draw attention to His good news, to show His power? Are you trusting Him with courage, like Philip and others, to engage them with the hope of the gospel? People all around us, my brothers and sisters, are dying and going to hell. And the only way that that can be turned around is if they will embrace the gospel of Jesus. So, so who has God brought into your life? And if you don't know, will you prayerfully be sensitive in coming days to who that might be? And then will you, with courage, trusting Jesus and the power of the Spirit, give them gospel hope? May that be true of us in spades in 2018. Let's pray.